Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today I'm going to share with you a brand new writing piece that I have completed that has taken me years to write and edit. And this is going to be completely separate from the previous series called God in the Frontier. That is officially done for now. This new writing piece is a true book in length, and it's entitled Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. Ultima Thule has 16 chapters. It is a true book with 452 pages of writing and over 1,100 resources to put it together. I'm really excited to finally be sharing the longest writing piece I've written with you all here on No Character Limit. I want the forward to explain what this book is about, but I will say that Ultima Thule was inspired by my fascination of humanity's connection as well as the Earth's connection to outer space around us and how it's impacted our behavior, our lifestyles, and how the Earth behaves. In this episode, you're going to hear the foreword to the entire book, as well as the first three parts of Chapter 1, which all focus around the Sahara Desert. In the next episode, I'm going to finish up Chapter 1 by focusing only on Part 4, which is an entirely different story in this chapter that focuses on Anatolia. The reason why I combine them together, though, is because there are two ancient stories that I want to tell that sort of weave their way around throughout the rest of the book and are returned back to and mentioned again. This is a good time to point out that the way I write these books in chapters and parts within the chapter is that each part of a chapter I feel like can stand alone as its own story, but I feel when we look at all of these parts together as a whole, a bigger picture starts to be seen. During the research of this episode, which is focused on the Sahara Desert, I learned about a European explorer named Heinrich Barth, and it led me to want to actually learn more about him. So I bought a book about him called A Labyrinth of Kingdoms by Steve Kemper. And even though I don't list it as a resource in this book, because it is not the focus of what this chapter is about, I feel like Heinrich Barth kind of deserves a little bit of a shout out or a little bit more of attention because not only is his story interesting, Steve Kemper did a wonderful job of 
telling Barth's story, and I think both the author and Heinrich Barth and his journeys deserves to be more well-known. So think about picking up a copy of A Labyrinth of Kingdoms. But let's get to the episode. Please don't forget to like, rate, and review if you like this podcast. If you want to follow No Character Limit at Mastodon.world, I will update whenever there is a new episode on there. And you can always reach out to me at NoCharacterLimit at ProtonMail.com. With that, please enjoy the very first episode of Ultima Thule Unraveling the Unknown. The Forward In the 4th century BCE, the world was a completely different place than it is today. This was the century of classical Greek culture. Alexander the Great, Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus, Ptolemy. This was the century where the era of Western history began. It was the century that would wipe away the dominance of the empires of antiquity. Ancient kingdoms, such as Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, which dominated neighbors for millennia, would never see their power rise to the same height again. The 4th century BCE was the century that Alexander the Great marched from Greece to India and dissolved the Persian Empire along the way. It was the age of Greek expansionism, unrivaled and unparalleled, and seemingly unstoppable. These classical Greeks are a segue between the lost worlds of old to the much more well-understood era of Roman power, the pair going on to undergird the entirety of our Western civilization today. And in the harbors of the port city of what is today Marseille, France, a Greek explorer named Pythias turned his ship north in search of amber and tin, two precious and rare materials of the time that could make him and his companions back in Greece wealthy. In Marseille, known as Massalia at the time, Pythias would have interacted with the Celtic people of the region. They were part of a large tribal network that expanded all across northwestern Europe. The Celts would have likely pointed Pythias in the direction of the British Isles on his quest, which Pythias found and proceeded to map for his Grecian homelands back in the balmy Mediterranean. The tumultuous and icy Atlantic was 
at the edge of the known world at the time. And after mapping the British Isles, he set his sails north yet again into completely uncharted territory. To put this into context, it is about 300 years before the Romans first explored Britain, and over a thousand years before the Vikings were able to travel as far as England to raid it. Pythias was in truly unknown waters, and anything could lie just over the horizon on any given day. That is, if the mercurial northern ocean didn't swallow him first. Writer F. Salazar of Hakai Magazine does an excellent job of describing what happened to Pythias next in his article entitled, This Norwegian Island Claims to Be the Fabled Land of Thule. Quote, And there the journey entered an unworldly realm. After a few days' sail, Pythias reached a place he described as neither earth nor sea. And here Salazar quotes Pythias, saying, But instead a sort of mixture of these similar to a marine lung, in which the earth and the sea and all things together are suspended, and the mixture is impassable by foot or ship. Salazar continues here. Pythias landed nearby on an island whose name he heard as Thule. Eventually, he returned to Massalia and wrote his master work, On the Ocean, an account of his voyage and a treatise of enormous influence in the ancient world. End quote. Thule. For thousands of years, the island of Thule has evaded accurate detection, and to this very day, it continues to cause conflict between Iceland and Norway as claimants to the land that, for centuries, has symbolized the end of the known world. And that book Pythias wrote, On the Ocean, the only known copy was lost in the fires of the Alexandria Library in Egypt, which left any in-depth clues by Pythias likely lost forever. All that remains of Pythias's famed book are just a few scattered quotes, such as, quote, The barbarian showed us where the sun set, for it happened in those places that the night was extremely short, lasting only two or three hours, and the sun sunk under the horizon, and after a short interval reappeared at his rising. End quote. Undoubtedly, this would seem unimaginable to the Mediterranean people whose days were roughly of equal length. The mixture of land and sea sounds as if possibly Pythias saw slurry created along the edges of polar ice flows. Salazar follows the progression of a legend in his article. Quote, 
These snippets of text seem to confirm that Pythias actually had discovered a strange island in the remote far north. In fact, the remotest far north of the known world. Thus, the adjective ultima, meaning most extreme, attached to it by the Roman poet Virgil. But where exactly was the island? No other explorer had returned to it in the centuries between the discovery and the destruction of the library. As a result, Strabo, Pliny, and other writers could only guess at Thule's true location. Their speculation initiated a whole branch of Thule scholarship and exploration, all aimed at finding the place Pythias had so intriguingly described. And as century after century went by without a definitive answer, Thule attained a kind of mythic stature. From the first century CE onward, Thule became more of an idea than an actual place, an abstract concept decoupled from the terrestrial map simultaneously of the world and otherworldly. Poised at the edge of the known and inhabited earth, it functioned as an emblem of mystical isolation, liminal remoteness, a real discovered place and yet unknown, out of space, out of time to quote Edgar Allan Poe in one of the countless literary allusions to the enigmatic island. End quote. The rest of Salazar's article goes into how interpreting classical maps of the known world and natural navigation routes of the time to give one more attempt at discovering the unknowable location that Pythias had described. But it was the mystique that Thule garnered that seems to be far more valuable than ever discovering the actual landing site of some long-dead sailor. Any location that could verifiably claim to be the location of the original Thule would be an instant tourist destination today because visiting the land that was once the definitive edge of the known world for centuries is enough for some people to feel the magnanimity of such a place, even when it no longer is that edge anymore. The excitement of knowing that you are standing at the precipice of the known world even millennia after it had been well explored beyond, can instantly transport us back to that time in our mind's eye. Ultima Thule is that unknown that is always just ahead of you, yet inaccessible at the same time. Even Pythias had to turn around, leaving the exploration of what was beyond for someone else. And explore we did. 
Thule was found again by the civilized world at some point and unceremoniously added to the maps without knowing it was the landing site of Pythias. Therefore, Ultima Thule began to be pushed further and further into the deserts, jungles, and frozen poles of the planet. As the article states, Ultima Thule no longer became just a place. It became a concept depicting the edge of what is known, be it a physical location or even an enigmatic concept. For a long time, Ultima Thule lay hidden in the unanswerable question of how long a year truly is, a problem that couldn't be solved for millennia. It was hidden in the mathematical equations that governed physics, one answer always leading to two more questions. And most of all, it was hidden in the inky depths of the night sky, the mysteries which lay mere miles above our heads, and yet could never be touched. Ultima Thule was always just beyond our fingertips, the first thing that's just out of reach of understanding. And even when we do cross the tundra and deserts and sail the oceans or skies to find the elusive specter, it only recedes further, and new efforts to reach it begin again. In addition to this concept behind the term Ultima Thule, through my research for this, I came across a German who bore witness to one of the greatest meteor storms ever seen in the year 1799, Alexander von Humboldt. Humboldt was a leading European scientist whose scientific understanding became wildly popular in the 19th century, and in 1845, he released a book that gripped Europe and America, which he famously titled Cosmos. What makes the title particularly noteworthy is that Cosmos was a Greek word that had been out of use since about the time of Pythias, meaning the assemblage of all things in heaven and earth, the universality of created things constituting the perceptible world. Humboldt put it more succinctly, calling it a harmoniously ordered whole. It was this concept that I was also trying to grasp within my writing of this piece. The popularity of Humboldt's holistic thinking, where he weaved together the collective works of many disciplines and imbuing them with human connection, awakened a whole generation to science and enlightenment ideas. His energy is said to have inspired the wave of late 19th and early 20th century science, which came to drive civilization's best practices forward. 
I came upon the term Ultima Thule twice within my writing before I even decided that was what I was going to name this piece. The first was early on when I could not help but document the exploratory contributions of the man, myth, and legend, Peter Freuken. Ultima Thule was the name of the outpost he built on Greenland, which later became an American military base. The second encounter was when I was learning about one of the furthest icy worlds in our solar system, originally named Ultima Thule, but it has since been renamed to the Native American name Arakoth, or Sky in Powhatan, because of a specific German club called the Thule Society that was closely associated with the Nazi party. The Thule Society was primarily focused on the origins of the Nazi concept of the Aryan race, and according to articles about the name change of the celestial body, the group is still associated with white supremacist movements today. And while distancing oneself from Nazis is always good, Another theme that frequently appears in this piece is one of scientific integrity. Thule has its origins in exploration, and exploration is never done well without the help of science. In my opinion, science should reclaim the word, especially for space-related objects. Because that is where Ultima Thule truly lies these days, far from the northern seas of Europe. It is also science that has thoroughly dismantled any realistic concept of the Nazi idea of racial superiority. Thule needs to be reclaimed for the collective civilized spirit of exploration and not left in the hands of the willfully ignorant. So, in this book, be prepared to explore the unknown, or at least what was unknown at one time, and marvel at the revelation of how the earth and life has forever changed as a result. Much of what follows are stories that can stand alone, but when they are looked at together, I think they provide a more comprehensive understanding that I don't think any single story could truly do justice by itself. The cosmos interacts with us every day, and we react and respond to its wishes because we are a part of it, not separate from it, a core point from Humboldt. While Humboldt and the concept Ultima Thule make cameos in this piece, they do not play a significant role to the greater stories I tell. It is in Humboldt's spirit of the cosmos that I hope to bring some beauty to the discoveries of the universe while appreciating a variety of Ultima Thule's that past generations had to conquer 
to give us the knowledge that we so often take for granted today. Finally, it was space itself that truly inspired me to write this piece. Without knowing where it would take me, I set out writing this piece on how outer space has impacted the planet and people on it, from the way it moves and shifts through space to the mysteries it holds about our existence. When we look up, we are looking into our home, as it is literally where Earth and the life that's on it has come from. And yet, so much of space doesn't make any sense to us. Before I had even wrote most of what I wanted to with this piece, I had the longest work I've ever done, and so decided to keep this space-related piece close to Earth and its relationship to the universe around it, and therefore space's impact on our own development as a species is a major focus as well. With that, we'll let the Edgar Allan Poe poem that was mentioned in Salazar's article bring us to the text of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. Poe's poem is called Dreamland. By a root obscure and lonely, Haunted by ill angels only, where an idolin named Night on a black throne reigns upright. I have reached these lands but newly from an ultimate dim Thule, from a wild, weird clime that lieth sublime, out of space, out of time. Bottomless veils and boundless floods and chasms and caves and titans' woods with forms that no man can discover for the tears that drip all over. Mountains toppling evermore into seas without a shore. Seas that restlessly aspire, surging, Unto skies of fire, lakes that endlessly outspread their lone waters, lone and dead, their still waters, still and chilly, with the snows of the lolling lily. By the lakes that thus outspread their lone waters, lone and dead, their sad waters, sad and chilly, with the snows of the lolling lily, by the mountains near the river, murmuring lowly, murmuring ever, by the gray woods, by the swamp, where the toad and the newt encamp, by the dismal tarns and pools where dwell the ghouls, by each spot the most unholy, in each nook most melancholy. There the traveler meets aghast, sheeted memories from the past. Shrouded forms that start and sigh as they pass the wanderer by. White-robed forms of friends 
long given in agony to the earth and heaven. For the heart whose woes are legion, tis a peaceful, soothing region. For the spirit that walks in shadow, tis, oh, tis an Eldorado. But the traveler traveling through it may not, dare not, openly view it. Never its mysteries are exposed to the weak human eye unclosed. So wills its king, who hath forbid the uplifting of the fringed lid, and thus the sad soul that here passes beholds it but through darkened glasses. By a root obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only, where an idolin named Night on a black throne reigns upright. I have wandered home, but newly, from this ultimate dim Thule. Chapter 1 Secrets of Antiquity Part 1 Ghosts of the Harmattan Quote Mr. George Lawrence C.M.G., First Class District Officer of His Majesty's Civil Service, sat at the door of his tent and viewed the African desert scene with the eye of extreme disfavor. There was beauty neither in the landscape nor in the eye of the beholder. The landscape consisted of sand, stone, Carangia burgrass, Tafasa underbrush, yellow, long stalked with long, thin bean pods, the whole varied by clumps of the coarse and hideous Tampophia plant. And, across all, the Harmattan was blowing hard. That terrible wind that carries the Saharan dust a hundred miles out to sea, not so much as a sandstorm, but as a mist or fog of dust, as fine as flour, filling the eyes, the lungs, the pores of the skin, the nose and throat, getting into the locks of rifles, the works of watches and cameras, defiling water, food, and everything else, rendering life a burden and a curse. Meanwhile, for George Lawrence, disappointment, worry, frustration, anxiety, heat, sandflies, mosquitoes, dust, fatigue, fever, dysentery, malarial ulcers, and that great depression which comes from monotony indescribable, weariness unutterable, and loneliness unspeakable. And the greatest of these is loneliness. End quote. 
That's an excerpt from Beau Jest by Percival Christopher Wren, written in 1924. So let's begin with an exercise in stretching our minds to try and conceive the size of the Sahara Desert. The Sahara is the largest hot desert on the planet, with an area of 3.5 million square miles, with enough dunes to cover the entire world in 8 inches of sand. And while we can understand with statistics that the Sahara is big, just how big is something our minds can sometimes struggle with, and yet, when compared to the size of our universe, it is barely worth mentioning. So, let's imagine that we're going on an American road trip, beginning in the Acadia Mountains in Maine, and then driving down the East Coast past Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and Miami, until you reach the Everglades of Florida. Having completed this 1,800-mile journey south, you continue west from there, cruising along the Gulf Coast through the bayous of Louisiana, passing New Orleans, Houston, and pushing out into the flatlands of the Texas Prairie and into the deserts of New Mexico. At Albuquerque, you find the Rocky Mountains, and you pass by them as you head into Arizona, through the unique tall cactus deserts and into Phoenix. Maybe a brief stop at the Grand Canyon before you hit the west coast at San Jose, over 2,000 500 miles from where you turned west at the Everglades in Florida. Turn north now and pass through Los Angeles, Sacramento, and San Francisco, through the Great Redwoods along the Pacific, and past Portland into the old forests of the northwest until you reach the cool, misty city of Seattle, 1,200 miles from where you turned north in hot and dry San Diego. From there, you turn back east, passing by the geysers of Yellowstone and once again crossing the Rocky Mountains, through the Great Plains and past Chicago, along each of the Great Lakes, until you find yourself along the St. Lawrence Seaway and leading back to Maine, nearly 3,500 miles east of Seattle. This extensive road trip roughly outlines the contiguous United States. And now take all of the land on the interior that was missed, add to it all of Hawaii and a large cut of Alaska, and you have the size of the Sahara Desert. People and life of all kinds exist in the Sahara but are scarce to be found when compared to the United States, for example. Yet, there is a wider diversity of landscapes within the Sahara than what is often first imagined by outsiders. The people of the Sahara have a word for it, Tanarawin, 
meaning the deserts, because they don't see the Sahara as one desert. The diversity within the Sahara causes them to see it as a mosaic of deserts. And while life does exist in this vast sea of dunes, dust, and rock, including areas that are even lush and green, much of the region is the life-threatening challenge of the sort described in Wren's colonial adventure novel, Jest that I quoted earlier. The Harmattan that was described in the book is the same annual phenomenon that affects the over 360 million people living in West Africa today. A fog of sand that consumes all. A simple internet search reveals how the people of the region offer advice on how to cope with it. Articles abound on asthma, heart conditions, how to dress, treating dry skin and hair, and just about everything else during the difficult months between roughly December to February each year, when the fine, granular haze colors all with a golden hue, settling into crevices of everything, and, no doubt, rendering life a burden and a curse. But what is this seasonal phenomenon known as the Harmattan? It originates in the sparsely populated region of northern Chad, in the very heart of the Sahara. The Harmattan dust is picked up from an open region between two ancient and desolate mountain chains, the volcanic Tibesti in the north and the sandstone Eneti in the south. The wind spanning thousands of miles between these two chains is funneled by the two mountain ranges into what is called the dustiest place on Earth, or the Bodelli Depression. For about 100 days every year, the winds whip through this corridor, lifting the infinitely fine grains of sand into the air, puffing out in every direction like a sheet being tossed open over the vast desert skies. The wind picks up the flowery mist of dust for hundreds of miles across the barren and flat Bodelli, exposing a bright scar of previously concealed sand that had not yet baked in the sun. That's so large that it's even easily spotted on satellite images. The Harmattan can create powerful storms that blast across the Sahara, picking up clouds of sand as it blusters west. Out of nowhere, the sapphire blue sky of the Sahara is pierced from a distance as the amorphous cloud of sand and dust approaches from the horizon. If you're on foot, it's already too late to escape it. Sand billows into the sky in all directions, swelling like a golden-brown avalanche, towering into the sky, dwarfing any mountain on earth. 
and seeing that there is no escape, the best a person can do as a sandstorm approaches is to prepare. Cover precious objects and food, grab the right clothing, secure the things that might blow away, and in an instant, the vast blue silence of the Saharan sky is transformed into a stinging and swirling fog of sand. From there, the Harmattan becomes a fact of life for the millions of people in Western Africa, in the same way snow and ice does for the more northern climes during the same months of the year. While the intensity of the Harmattan can vary from stormy to calm, the sky remains a golden hue. The Harmattan shares other qualities with winter as well. Temperatures go deadly cold at night. People struggle with a constant battle to retain moisture. And all exposed surfaces are coated with whatever falls from the sky just like snow. The dust of the Harmattan climbs high into the atmosphere and hovers over the Atlantic like sawdust suspended in the sunlight. As it continues its journey across West Africa and over the Atlantic, the gossamer particles of the Harmattan resemble a hazy smog more than the sandstorm that originally blasted it into the sky. Reaching high above the clouds into a part of the sky known as the Saharan air layer, the fine dust from the Bodelli drifts entirely over the Atlantic, easily crossing it and landing in the millions of tons throughout the Americas where most people have never heard of the Harmattan at all, let alone the Bodelli Depression. From the Amazon to Texas to as far north as the Arctic Circle, this desert dust from the Harmattan can be found. Thus is the impact of the Sahara on the world. Famous red Florida sunsets, Algae blooms in the Gulf and a lull in hurricanes are all directly connected to this annual Harmattan season that's an ocean away. Chapter 1, Part 2 the discovery of a lost world. P.C. Wren's Beau Jest, which I quoted at the beginning of this chapter, is a Victorian fictional adventure novel that spoke about the native people of the Sahara as a wild and disorderly horde that wantonly massacred at will. It was a predominant attitude at a time when European hubris over its colonial domains was at its height. 
disparaging attitudes against the local people of Africa, like that of Wrens, was a commonly held belief across the European continent over the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But the Europeans never took the time to truly get to understand or demonstrate respect for these local cultures during what is now remembered as the Scramble for Africa, where each European nation used beguiling treachery to assert claims and colonize land that was not inhabited by them. The landscape of Africa, from the dry Sahara Desert to the humid Congo rainforest, charmed the European imagination and inspired countless fiction Victorian adventure novels just like Bojest. But in 1850, a true European explorer set out from Tripoli on the Libyan coast of the Mediterranean Sea to the millennia-old city of Timbuktu through the Muslim-dominated Sahara. A German man exploring for the English, Heinrich Barth, had been called the greatest explorer that you'd never heard of for his five-year adventure into the Sahara. As a student under the famed Alexander von Humboldt, he was recommended personally to the British for this seemingly impossible endeavor. For most Europeans, such a trek would have been certain death, not merely for the dire climate of the Sahara, which was harsh enough, but because the Christian and Muslim cultures were highly distrustful and ignorant of one another. On an earlier trip to the Sahara, Barth was even shot in the legs by some Touaregs that thought his chest holding his daguerreotype was filled with gold. So it was not surprising that during his British trip that Barth lost all of his European companions due to hostile forces and the elements. Barth's own life was in jeopardy on more than one occasion, as suspicious, curious, and friendly locals guided him through the intricate, multicultural labyrinth of the Sahara. But it was his respect for Islam during a time where Europeans had looked down upon it as a religion to be conquered that had spared Barth's life on several occasions. He was firmly Christian, but never failed to discuss the similarities between Islam and Christianity and view Muslims as his equal. And it was when Barth was a thousand miles away from any lake, sea, or ocean that he came upon some ancient, beautiful, and confusing rock paintings and engravings. The perennially arid Sahara easily preserves any sort of markings on rocky outcrops and caves hidden amongst the secret sands. It was at one of these sites that Barth had found this human-made art that had no business belonging in the middle of this enchanted desert. 
They depicted, according to a Nature article, pastoral scenes with abundant elephants, giraffes, hippos, aurochs, which was a wild ancestor of domestic cattle, and antelope, occasionally being pursued by bands of hunters. And I've shared some of these pictures of the rock paintings in my book. Other animals that were likely included were gazelles, crocodiles, and ostriches. It's true that these animals were common to the continent, but no memories, stories, or lore of giraffes in the Sahara existed even among the oldest of the desert peoples. Only occasionally would bones of these creatures mysteriously materialize out of the dunes and perplex the locals. These animals just couldn't exist in this harsh landscape, and yet their undisputed memory lay everywhere throughout all of the Sahara. Barth recognized the incongruence depicted in this art, consisting of bounty in a desolate land primarily consisting of sky and sand. He noted that the cave art, quote, bears testimony to a state of life very different from that which we are accustomed to see now in these regions, end quote. Barth would be one of the first people to hit on the idea that the Sahara had not always been a desert. And as it turns out, the massive size of the Sahara belies its age, as it has been discovered that as little as 5,000 years ago, the Sahara was not the parched landscape that it is today but instead an oasis of life larger than the island continent of Australia. Even more, this massive greenscape had existed for roughly 6,000 years before it slowly leached nearly all life and water from the region. From Egypt and Sudan to Chad, Algeria, and Mauritania, more ancient cave art would be discovered, all of which would depict a scene full of lakes, grass, animals, trees, and people. Today, we know this era to be called the African Humid Period, which roughly existed between 11,000 and 5,000 years ago and it was once one of the greatest life-sustaining regions of the world. Scientists from various disciplines have confirmed the manifold lakes in North Africa and the variety of life once found in the region. The largest of these lakes were called mega-lakes, and there were at least three across the region. And the largest of the mega lakes was Lake Mega Chad, outsizing even the Caspian, which is the world's largest lake today, by 10,000 square miles. In total, Lake Mega Chad was over 150,000 square miles of fresh water and located in the heart of the Green Sahara. What remains of this vast yet 
relatively shallow lake is the modern Lake Chad. Located today in its namesake country, it is a shadow of its ancient glory. Currently, Lake Chad struggles to exist. In the 1960s, it boasted an area of nearly 10,000 square miles, putting it on par with the size of Lake Erie, or the state of New Jersey. But since then, it has continued to lose volume, and is located in a highly water-sensitive region south of the Sahara, known as the Sahel. Drought-like conditions coupled with the region's unique climate significantly impacts the size of Lake Chad on an annual basis, which today is hardly larger than 100 square miles, 1,500 times smaller than what it was at its height. Lake Megachad would have been teeming with both flora and fauna as it spanned across what is today parts of Niger, Nigeria, Cameroon, and Chad, with many of the freshwater fish you'd see in northern Africa today, such as perch and cichlid. As it started to dry up over time, it would have left behind rich nutrients, such as phosphorus, that dried and cracked into the fine sands of an expanding desert. The remnants of Lake Mega Chad are still there, baked into the desert sand and dried to a powder. This nutrient-rich sand is found nowhere more prominently than in the desolate Bodelli Depression. In Bodelli, once the floor of the greatest lake on Earth, almost a million tons of the dust can be swept up on any given day during the Harmattan, lifting the nutrient-rich particles, the remnants of thousands of years of marine life decomposed on the lake bed, across the ocean, and ultimately landing somewhere in the Western Hemisphere. Each speck of dust carries a signature, a fingerprint made of lead isotopes that identifies its continent of origin. This convergence of physics, geology, and climate science is how we know that about 40 million tons of Saharan dust settles into the Amazon rainforest annually. The Amazon then in turn filters 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide every year, about 5% of the world's total, and why it has been named the lungs of the earth. Although it is barely perceptible to most people in the Western Hemisphere, the dust provides the Amazon with tens of thousands of tons of nutrients every year. The phosphorus left by the countless sea life that perished in Lake Megachad replenishes the Amazon with this imperceptible rain of fine particles with the same regularity of a season. This annual injection of Saharan nutrients on Amazonian soil gives the same sort of boost a gardener might provide by fertilizing their plants each year, 
but instead of a gardener, it is one of the most desolate places on the planet that fertilizes the greatest rainforest on Earth. This also means, then, that if the Sahara were still green, the Amazon could not flourish with the same strength that it does today. Even more, as the dust crosses the great expanse of the Atlantic toward the Amazon, 500 million tons of these fine grains slip below the waves of the ocean, fertilizing the plankton and marine life in the Middle Atlantic. The full effect of this Atlantic nutrient dump is still largely unknown and needs to be studied further. But this annual gift of dust around the globe, picked up by a dry lake bed tucked between a pair of forgotten mountain ranges, has brought more than one branch of science to rethink how global biomes interact. But the only reason the lifeless Sahara can bear such a gift to the Atlantic and Amazon today is because it was once full of life itself for thousands of years, as the sand could not be so nutritious without the countless generations of flora and fauna dying to create it. It's a demonstration on how things long gone and forgotten still impact everyday life without us even realizing it. A very similar thing is true about oil as well. And yet, when the Sahara dried up 5,000 years ago, it appeared to have happened suddenly over the course of just a few centuries or even just a few human generations. So I'd like you to imagine this scene 5,000 years ago. The few remaining families hunched over a fire of a once thriving lakeside village where the children listened to stories by the village elder under the now typical clear night sky. A sky the elder once remembered clouding up and welling with rain far more frequently than it did now. He points to a spot not 50 steps away and claims that there was once water there as far as the eye could see, open for the drinking, rather than hiding in the roots, dew, and secret springs, the only sort of water that they were familiar with anymore. And the children would look in the direction that he pointed and puzzle over what such a scene might look like, knowing there is no water for many days' walk, let alone water that was in such abundance. He spoke of great beasts that came to the water, and the children would listen as intently as if someone had described seeing a real-life dragon. The types of animals the children heard about sounded like they came more out of a dream. And the elder would talk about his own grandfather and what bounty the village held in those ancient days well before him. While the elder recounts of how big the village was and how many families existed when he was a young boy, he swears it was nothing compared to his grandfather's time as a child. 
Sometimes remnants of the older, larger village are unearthed by the cracking sandy earth in areas the children went to play. And they'd entertain that maybe their village really had been as large and important as the elder claimed it once was. But even if it was true, there was no village that they knew of that existed of that size anymore, and it felt no different than a fantasy to them. And as they looked at the few families remaining, barely scratching out an existence from the dead earth in a place where farms once covered the hillsides, the children have a decision to make on whether it's worth staying. No matter how good life once was here, it no longer was such anymore. The choice was becoming clear. Leave the area or adapt to a more nomadic lifestyle, where crossing larger distances became imperative to survival. Clues of this ancient water world of northern Africa are found all throughout the desert, beyond the cave art from ancient humans. The amount of fresh water draining from the Nile, the Niger, and other rivers thousands of years ago was much greater than it is today. And today, just beneath its parched surface, the Sahara conceals an ancient network of underground aquifers, bubbling up in the most unlikely of places, filling the secret, mystical oases the Sahara is known for. These oases are often guarded jealously by the variety of desert peoples descended from these African humid Saharans who chose to stay in the landscape of their ancestors. The very same desert people Heinrich Barth trusted his life with and his guides on his trek to Timbuktu. The expanse of this underground network of lakes and channels has only recently been fully realized with modern technology, and North African nations have been working together on how to extract and use this precious subterranean resource that has been hiding just out of sight for the last 5,000 years. This landscape larger than the continental United States, was once a land where not only people lived, but thrived. Chapter 1, Part 3 Humid Saharan Lifestyle Not only is it difficult to imagine the Sahara as a bastion for life and humanity, it's difficult for us to stretch our minds to understand just how long ago 5,000 years really is. It's 50 times older than World War One. It's two and a half times older than Christianity. Civilizations like the Greeks, Persians, and Chinese were at best still 1,000 years away from their historical origin. 
to take a moment and attempt to transport yourself back to a time where the existence of the Persian Empire was a distant future rather than a distant past is difficult to imagine. Even today, attempting to predict what the future holds in five years is often a fruitless endeavor. But attempting to imagine what 5,000 years in the future would be like is just impossible, an exercise in imagination rather than evidence. These distant people who lived on this great green Sahara for generations suddenly had to face a terrifying reality, much like how climate change is gripping humanity today. What was happening to the once lush savannas and why they were disappearing must have been the most pressing issue of their time. And if they could peer 5,000 years into the future and see that it never recovered would be tragic. It was the only home their families would have ever known and it was about to turn to dust for millennia. Today, archaeologists have found nearly a dozen sites across the Sahara giving clues as to the lifestyle of the 6,000-year span of the humid Saharans. One of the best can be found by crossing a nondescript sandy hill deep in the deserts of Niger at the Gobro archaeological dig site, where the bones of humid Saharans have been found that are nearly 10,000 years old, twice the age of the Sahara Desert. When these people were put into the ground, they were buried near a lakeside settlement, rich with plants and animals, all the life one could expect to find in an African savanna today surrounded these ancient humid Saharans as they came to the gravesite to bury their loved ones. Gobro must have been a sacred place, as bodies were buried there for generations to come. And after their bodies were covered with the life-giving soil of the Sahara, things continued more or less unchanged for thousands of years to come above the surface. But when the remains of these long-departed bodies were excavated and once again exposed to the sky, nothing around them would have been recognizable. A parched, hot landscape, void of any sign of life, despite being in the exact same place, now a completely desolate alien world. For five thousand years these bodies rest in the fertile earth, and for five thousand more they continued to lay there as dust and hot desert winds blew over them, drying and cracking the earth, while the clear desert night sky kept vigil above. 
The site of Gobro is in an area called by the nomadic Toreg as a desert within a desert, its bleakness being particularly extreme, even for the Sahara. But Gobro was such a popular lake settlement that it existed for thousands of years before it succumbed to desert. It was so popular that two physically different groups of people lived there over 1,000 years apart from each other. The earlier group at Gobro are called Kiffians, and their settlements are identified by the style of pottery they produced. Several centuries before the Kiffians settled at Gobro, the earth had been changing again. It was a start of a new era, and the earth was beginning to warm from the most recent ice age. The beginning of the Holocene era, around 11,700 years ago, was the beginning of a global climate that would begin to resemble the climate that we are used to today, and is characterized by the nearly two dozen millennia of warming that has been consistently occurring since. Before the Kiffians settled at Gobero, there was the Ice Age, and the Sahara was, again, a dry desert. But as the Earth began to warm, the Sahara became increasingly green, and beckoned people, plants, and animals into this once inhospitable landscape. And as the Sahara bloomed, it was the Kiffians who found themselves amongst the earliest to settle within her boundaries around 7700 BCE. Discovered by accident in 2008 while searching for dinosaur bones, the remains of these 10,000-year-old humans were initially uncovered by the shifting sands of the desert and just found lying exposed to the open sky. These Kiffian bones lay long forgotten, slowly eroding in the desert winds destined to become as fine as the particles wearing them away had this discovery not been made. What pieces have since been recovered leave little for us today to understand about their culture. But there are some clues. They were a tall and strong people, with evidence that they may have been as tall as six foot eight and they buried their dead in a similar fashion each time, with knees and arms tucked into the body, belying their true height. Along this new lake of the Holocene Epoch, the Kiffian used jagged-tipped spears for hunting and harpoons for fishing, and they maintained this lifestyle for over 1,000 years, hunting, fishing, using their mighty size to their advantage, and burying their dead in a similar fashion. With no evidence of violence imprinted on their bones, they're presumed to have been a peaceful people. 
But life in Gobro was not always good. Just as the Serengeti in the southern part of Africa can have wet and dry periods, so too did the Green Sahara. After a millennium of Kifian control at the settlement had lapsed, Gobero dried up and the Kifian disappear from the archaeological record roughly around 8,000 years ago, their story gone cold. They likely experienced the same problem that would ail future generations of Green Saharans around 5,000 years ago, when the whole of the Sahara dried out completely. The Kifians were never to return, and for another 1,000 years, Gobero remained vacant as people settled among more fruitful regions of the Green Sahara. Despite its vivacity, the Green Sahara was not equally lush in all places at once. The landscape still trended toward the drier side of the climate scale. Just as anyone would expect in such a vast region, some areas were more life-giving at times than others. The Gobero settlement's dry spell kept people from permanently settling there for a millennium. But the life-sustaining lake at Gobro came back, and so did people. But it was no longer Kifians who lived there. This time, it was a new people known as the Tenereans around 7,000 years ago or about 5200 BCE. The Tenereans, like the Kifians, were identified by the design of the clay pots they used. Like the Kifians before them, they flourished, but for far longer, nearly 3,000 years, living along just this one settlement at Gobero. The true expanse of the Tenerean Saharan network has since been sunk in the Sea of Sands, but 3,000 years at a single settlement should count for something to get a glimmer of their power. The Tenereans were a physically smaller people than the Kifians as well, not even reaching six feet in height. They may have discovered the old Kifian graves themselves because they also buried their dead along the lake, in some cases burying their dead right next to 5,000-year-old giant Kifian corpses that were hunched in a fetal position. But their style of burial indicated that they were more culturally advanced than the Kifians. This along with being so much closer to us in time, gives us a better idea on how the Tenereans lived compared to the more enigmatic Kifians. It was clear that, once again, life abounded in Gobro, as the Tenereans hunted now with a bow and arrow and going after large prey like gazelles and ostriches. It was clear they had livestock of cattle and fished for perch along the crocodile-lined lake. 
ostrich eggs were fashioned into the shape of an o-ring and laced onto a string as jewelry on at least one body was an ornament on the upper arm made of a hippo tusk their burials were also more unique and personalized than the kiffians one man was buried seated atop a mud turtle while another's head lay resting on a clay vessel the most prized archaeological find at gobro has been the grave of a woman and two children presumed to be a mother and her children all holding hands as archaeologists try to piece together the evidence at the burial site of the mother and children a six thousand year old scene of the green sahara flickers ephemerally into existence like ghosts in a fading photograph one day along a nearby lake surrounded by green hills covered in flowers some forgotten group of tenoreans gathered together for a tender burial the pollen that remains indicates that on one side of a bed of flowers the children were laid and on the other side was the mother angled to face each other then their hands were tenderly intertwined in an eternal embrace we can't know the cause of this unusual scene because there are no indications as to the reason why they were all buried together the hologram from the past begins to flit out of view the cause of such a tragic scene taken away by the sands of the sahara a broken film reel giving us just a glimpse of a time and place that had become lost in a barren wasteland for thousands of years after the burial time and generations continued to pass for the prosperous tenorean people at gobero until they too saw the land drying up just as the kiffians had and moved on only this time the sahara turned to a more permanent desert and has since never brought back the life-giving lakes and grasses that generations of peoples have come to know as home signs indicate that the tenoreans at gobero stayed long into the desertification staying longer than most with archaeological signs as late as 2550 bce or 4500 years ago a full millennium after the desert began taking over as the new biome of the sahara but like the rest of the green sahara the gobero settlement could not withstand the increasing lifelessness of the region and even the tenoreans had to abandon it forever there are very few places today whose longevity can be compared to that of the gobero settlement or humid saharan people as a whole and yet without this chance discovery their existence may not have ever been known to us at all as the sahara begins to dry up around five thousand years ago the people living in these areas had to make that fateful choice of hoping against the odds for a better upcoming year 
or to pack up and begin to move into terra incognita. Each year, the chances of the lush landscape returning only worsened, and more people continued to try their luck elsewhere, striking off into the horizon, leaving everyone and everything they've ever known behind forever. Around 3000 BCE, the trend of people leaving the Saharan region for more reliable weather and climate would have been pervasive across this vast continent-sized land. How many cities, towns, and villages like Gobro have been lost under the Saharan sands? How many people inhabited this ancient, humid land? And how connected was their culture with one another? When things started to become more difficult for them, were they able to band together against the perennial blights of drought and desertification that everyone seemed to be facing? In at least one place, it seems that the people alive at the end of the African humid period were able to come together. Here, they went on to build something bigger than they had ever built before, a network of cities all dependent on the only reliable water source left in all of North Africa, the Nile. And it just so happens that about the same time that the humid Saharans were being forced to migrate from the increasingly arid lands of North Africa, the young kingdom of Egypt was born. With the nectar of the Nile, the new kingdom was able to flourish in a place now bleached of the variety of life that once defined it. It's likely any farming tactics learned along the savannas of the Green Sahara, especially in the many places where water remained difficult to use, were applied here, in the new young river kingdom of hope, in uncertain times. Similarly, the Kush kingdom upriver was born around the same time, and thrived for 2,000 years at the same time that Egypt grew. But for those who remained in the heart of the Sahara and refused to leave the home of their ancestors, a transformation occurred. The settlement-oriented people, like the ones who lived in Gobero for thousands of years, had morphed into a nomadic people, today known as the Toreg. They cover themselves in their signature indigo robes and turbans that dye their skin blue as they protect themselves from the eternal sun, their permanent daily companion, while at night they get a full view of the clear heavens glittering above. The Toreg guard the chimerical secrets of their ancestral land with their life, distrustful of those who come to their land that nearly all others have forsaken. Even 5,000 years later, Heinrich Barth, who first made note of the rock art of the humid Saharans, nearly lost his life in the Saharan mountains of air, 
because no foreigner had ever passed through their lands and lived. They had fought the Arabs in the 8th and 9th centuries, the Songhai in the 15th century, and the French in the 19th century, and none could wipe them out or take their land. The full connection between the humid Saharans and the tribes of today may never be truly known. Both Egypt and the Tuareg tribes still exist today, and despite their two totally different lifestyles, one agricultural, the other nomadic, both may find their origin in the tragic end of the humid Saharan period, born of two different responses on how to live when faced with the same problem. Those who found themselves in early Egypt might have been the immigrants and refugees from the interior, possessing skills on how to farm, herd, and hunt. They learned how to accept differences and work together to build a new and more powerful civilization, the likes of which were unrivaled anywhere else in the world at the time. Having lost 3.5 million square miles worth of land, the concentration around what few water sources remained must have forced cooperation in an unprecedented way. Egypt entered the world stage as a global power against other river valley civilizations of the Indus and Mesopotamia. But back in the Sahara Desert, now empty of the levers, those who stayed embraced a radically nomadic lifestyle in the newly barren landscape and worked to understand and adapt to the new secrets of their ancestral land, thriving where most others could easily die in a day. One group finding their strength in bounty, the other in scarcity, and both groups have continued to survive with their identity intact into modern times. Any ancient civilization that may have existed before the Egyptians and Kush have been shrouded by the shimmering sands of the Sahara. One by one, each humid Saharan settlement would succumb to the encroaching dunes and dust. Any modern Saharan town or city knows the problems of warding off the sand, as it takes on a life all its own. Timbuktu, located today in the center of Mali's stretch of the Sahara, had always been a desert city. Established around the 5th century BCE, Timbuktu is over 2,500 years old, only half the distance between now and the Green Sahara. Its Jinjerber Mosque in the center of the city is one of its most prominent features, established 700 years ago as a learning center. The structure is uniquely Saharan and made out of mud and organic material. And while it was once a powerful desert trading center, 
people have since found easier ways of transporting goods than across the unforgiving Saharan landscape, and its population has consistently declined for centuries. During the 15th century, Timbuktu was at its height with a population of a quarter million, but in the 21st century, it had shrunk to a fifth of the size, with only about 50,000 people. The city, along with the small satellite villages that have depended on their proximity to Timbuktu for their survival, have competed with the intruding sands of the Sahara for centuries. As the population dwindles, sacrifices are made to the Sahara. By the way the winds blow, a dune could slowly materialize in the middle of an abandoned village, the Sahara subtly but firmly making its claim. And 5,000 years from now, not even satellite images will be able to detect that it was ever there. That is, unless the dunes decide to uncover their treasure for those distant foreign future peoples like they did at Gobero for us. The dunes of the Sahara can tower as high as 50 stories, remaining virtually impenetrable to the human world. Therefore, the extent of the African humid period remains locked from our knowledge and hidden, possibly forever, by these shifting towers of mystery. And it is here that we shall set aside the Sahara and its mysteries for the time being and look towards another meaningful region, the crossroads of the ancient world, Anatolia. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and 
you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.